This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We offer our deepest respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad Hello and welcome to Bad Behaviour. My name is Rosalind. And my name is Nicola. <laughs> Sorry, we're a bit giggly. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say and welcome to another episode. <laughs> it was just silent. See, this is what happens when you leave for a week. Things get awkward. I don't know how to act around you anymore. <laughs> it's me. I'm, I'm the same. I'm nervous now. I'm nervous. Do you want to do an icebreaker? Yes, please. That would be fun. Okay. Well, this week we're talking to an artist. So tell me about how you're expressing yourself. That's a really good question. That's a friend to friend. That's a great question. If I'm going to take that seriously and not make some shitty self-deprecating joke like my gut instinct tells me to do. (laughs) What is that joke? Just before you go on. It's it's too mean. Everything you can't just describe the joke vaguely. <laughs> okay, go. What, what I told it? you, I'm Seriously. nervous. I can't come up with jokes on the spot anymore. <laughs> it's just me. All right. I might be. I might be bigger and better than ever. I might be slightly more charismatic and a little bit more. You know, I'm. T- I'm a bit tired, but that doesn't make me any different. Yeah, cool. Well, back to what you asked. I've been (laughs) creating a lot, creating a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. That's the joke. That was the joke. (laughs) (laughs) What a lead up. All for that pissy dad joke. (laughs) You're welcome. So I love poetry a lot and I love writing poetry. So I've been writing a lot of angsty poems, which has been really helpful, helpful reclaiming my moods, twisting them into some sort of usable tonic, all that type of stuff. What else have I been creating? I've been painting a lot as well. I've been sending my friends like painted cards. I don't know if they're very pretty, but it's the thought that counts. Am I getting a painted card? You will be now. Now that I've <laughs> Now that you've told me. Yeah, you will be. What about you? What have you been creating anything? Yeah, I have actually. Let's be honest, it's really hard to stay motivated in quarantine. There's something about this weird limbo that we're in at the moment that just saps you of all your creative juices somehow. But I've been pushing through and trying my best, and I've been doing a lot of songwriting. So what has been the content of your songs? Like any good ones? A lot of longing for a better life. It's so crazy. What an absolutely crazy coincidence because all my poetry has been about that as well. (laughs) Just different aspects, you know, a better relationship, prospects, just getting out of the house more, maybe seeing a few people. Going out and getting, well, having fun. (laughs) You were going to say getting drunk, right? Because that's where my mind went. Yeah, but I don't want to promote that kind of behavior. Well, I mean, getting drunk that ends with a night on the dance floor. Like, that's that's what I've been craving. Getting pleasantly tipsy, but not overdoing the alcohol that I consume. And having fun with friends and family. (laughs) 
That's the censored version for the kids. There you go. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you've been writing still. It is, I feel that as well. It's really hard to keep creating in stifling conditions. And a lot of the time I feel super guilty when I'm not inspired. I don't know about you, but I get really um, down on myself and about not creating my best work. And then, yeah, because you feel like you've got all the time in the world. So you should be. You should just be pumping out the bangers. But no, that's not the case. It's so hard. And I've kind of just started thinking about all my creative pursuits as, you know, I don't need to be meeting these intense standards for myself. They're just to help me get through the day and to bring me joy. It's a tough time. You need something cathartic to get through it. Well, you know what's helping me get through it? Is this wonderful guest that we're about to introduce and her brilliant art. Rachel Sara is a contemporary Aboriginal artist from Gurengareng country. Rachel uses art as a powerful tool in storytelling to educate and share Aboriginal culture and its evolution. Rachel's work often challenges and explores the themes of society's perception of what Aboriginal art and identity is. Recently, Rachel's work Two Worlds was projected onto the William Jolly Bridge and she was an artist in this year's Brisbane Street Art Festival. Rachel was also the lead artist for the Queensland Firebirds Indigenous Dress and a collaborating artist with Life Apparel and Brisbane-based jewellery designer Concrete Jellyfish. You can find more about her and her incredible work at rachelsara.com. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following episode contains references to sensitive and confronting content regarding the stolen generations. Growing up, I kind of never really felt like I belonged anywhere in the sense that I kind of knew I was Aboriginal but Aboriginal culture kind of felt like a bit of a disconnect. My mum, her ancestors and her parents are from you know England, Ireland and found out just recently that they came to Australia because the first member of the family was a convict. So I've always had this kind of mixed race about me and never truly felt like I belonged a little bit. And I think growing up when in Australia, particularly when I was growing up, you know, it was still a time where Aboriginal culture wasn't overly celebrated. I mean, even now, to a certain extent, Aboriginal culture isn't celebrated. So I never truly saw myself reflected anywhere. And when I was kind of looking for Aboriginal culture and resources, I felt like what we were exposed to was just this certain um, representation of an Aboriginal person and I obviously didn't fit that mould and so growing up was a real challenge to really understand what my identity meant and how that fit into the Australian narrative. Part of my process now through my art, it kind of started as a way for me to create a place where I felt like I belonged. So I was representing my story and one thing that I didn't realize would be so special was that created a platform to see other people reflected in my journey so it really opened up this idea that you know you can be proud you can be an aboriginal woman and you don't have to have dark skin you don't have to speak your language you don't have to live on country all of those things yes it's great to be able to speak your language you know I'm still working with my cousins to learn my language but you know that process really is kind of not spoken about or in some ways there's like this idea of being shame about it 
I'd love if you could kind of describe your artistic process a little bit. Yeah, so my artistic process, it does vary depending on what the outcome is, but I never really go into anything with a preconceived idea of what I'm going to create. Um, Like I said, it kind of comes from my experiences. So by the time that I put, you know, pen to paper or paint to canvas, it's done a lot of digesting in my mind. I'm the type of person, and I'm, I'm probably because I'm a Gemini as well, but so am I. Um, <laughs> a lot of my... <laughs> Yay, totally. So you can probably relate that a lot of our thinking is done internally without necessarily um, saying it out loud. So my process does kind of start with, you know, just digesting a lot of thoughts that come to mind. And sometimes they can be very random. Sometimes they can be quite invasive. I'll be asleep during the night and then I'll wake up with you know something at 3 a.m and can't get back to sleep because I'm fixating on it but the actual creative process about putting something on paper or canvas or computer it just kind of comes to me when I'm doing it so all of that thinking just then I allow myself to freely explore what that represents visually so a lot of the time that's done through color if I'm kind of in a way trying to create a refreshed way of thinking or a more optimistic way of thinking, you can see those colours come through through the psychology of what each of those means and then, you know, that darkness can come through to colour. So I feel like colour is a really powerful tool to convey that message as well. But some of my work is done digitally. Um, You can kind of see there. I've been admiring it behind you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. People... It's a podcast, so people can't see this, but trust me, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so some of it's done digitally, some of it's through, you know, acrylic on canvas, and I'm definitely trying to get into a mixed media type artist. But yeah, the process does vary, but it all comes back to this idea of conveying a message and storytelling through my work. So I guess that would probably be the core of my process, purely because my inspiration comes by what I'm living and how I react to that. And that space that I need to create to kind of feel that piece mentally and physically and all of that. So, yeah, that's how I would kind of explain it as an extension of my experiences. I'm a singer, um, so I'm sort of coming from that sort of side. Do you find that in terms of identity you feel like if people see your art, they know a lot more about you and if they don't know it, they don't know you as well? Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing that I'm finding more recently is because my art is such a personal connection to who I am, You know, when someone doesn't like it or if someone has something to say about it, it's like a very personal experience for me and my soul. But the stories that I tell through my work really give people an idea of, you know, what I'm going through. And I've kind of always tried to be as authentic and transparent in that journey. Family connection to art and just it being embedded in our culture was definitely, you know, a step in the right direction. When I did leave uni, I did work for two Indigenous agencies, was able to gain a lot of experience in just, you know, community engagement and that sort of aspect in, you know, what's often a very mainstream dominated industry. It was nice to kind of place culture in that and kind of see how art and design can really share our stories and connect to community. 
So when I think of Indigenous art, Indigenous Australian art, I think straight to those beautiful paintings, you know, the dotted paintings. They're so gorgeous. They're incredible. But it wasn't until much later in my life that I understood the context behind them. I started looking into the symbolism and some of the incredible Dreamtime stories that that often um, influence them and influence the artists that create them. And it's appalling that it took me so long to start learning about that considering that I've lived in Australia my entire life. The fact that I didn't know the first thing about Indigenous art until I had left school, that's insane. I'm exactly the same as well. It took me a lot of years to do, to catch up on what should have been part of my core learning. And I also think that when I think back to what I learnt in school, art was definitely a part of that. You know, there was in history classes, there was so much focus on art history, but it was this intense Western lens. Like you learnt so much context about the Mona Lisa and what was going on behind her eyes and like all these hypotheticals about this single painting of a woman. And yet there's no context at all or no time given to teach students who are learning on stolen land about art and stories that are an intrinsic part of living as an uninvited guest on that land as well. You know, like this art holds a lot of the trauma of the stolen generation as well. And I would have, yeah, it would have been so wonderful to have that be a part of my history class. How did you start learning about it? Do you remember? Through social media. So most of my knowledge that I have about Indigenous art has been through following Indigenous artists on social media or um, following a lot of black business collectives and pages, Indigenous activists. It was all self-directed. Even in terms of basic Indigenous history at school, I never learnt that at all. And I, I went to private school as well and you'd think (laughs) being so privileged like that would there'd be a part of of learning that was you know an acknowledgement of of the history and the trauma but no I did not do one indigenous history class my entire Australian education no I'm the same in terms of history of Australia my studies of that you know 1788 onwards it was very much So for those people who don't live in Australia, 1788 was the year of the First Fleet, the year when European settlers came to Australia, invaded Australia. It's the start of a very horrible time in Australian history. That's when history started in my eyes when I was younger, because that's as early as we went. And I learned so much about the gold rush and the Eureka Stockade and all of these different elements of that time. But until I left school and I went to uni and I started being interested in that and learning how much I didn't know, I didn't have a single clue. I can't remember how old I was. I would have still been at school when I learned this. But I remember someone saying at the time they said 40,000 year history. Now we know it's much longer than that. But I remember them saying that number then. And I remember being shocked because it had never come up before. And that's appalling. That's appalling. I mentioned social media and communities to learn within social media. And I think amongst those communities, it's kind of a baseline 
assumption that you are not taught the history of the land that you live on in Australia. Children, even today, are coming out with a lack of awareness about Indigenous history. Yeah, we get taught that Australia is this multicultural society, but we don't talk about its first culture. That attitude and reputation of Australia, it plays out on a global stage as well, because I grew up overseas. So I was born in America and then moved... We moved to Australia and then we moved to the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East and then to Mongolia and then to Indonesia and then back to Australia. So it was a pretty eclectic mix of cultures to grow up in and learn in, in all of them. It was a very Western lens and I went to international schools and they had very British curriculums. So a lot of the history gave accolades to colonizers. You know, you learnt history through a colonist lens. Throughout all these experiences of living overseas, that attitude of Australia being this very liberal and progressive multicultural society that was the one of the constants you know there's that attitude of Australians where people are quite fascinated with how seemingly perfect our country is and I remember when I moved back to America for uni I kind of made it one of my missions to really gear myself up with as much knowledge about Indigenous history as I could because people would say such uneducated things and then I could come back with the context of uh, actually that's not the case. We live on stolen land, there's an entire stolen generation and kind of give them a very brief picture into the history that just isn't taught and isn't accepted because I think If you truly had accepted and made reparations and amends for that part of Australia's identity, you would teach it at schools. I can read a Western painting. A lot of the stories in, you know, 16th, 17th century art are about a religious iconography. And I can read them. I can look at them and go, okay, that was that story from the Bible. And that was that contextual time in history. You know, I have the literacy in those symbols and that understanding. But I look at an Australian painting with Australian history in it and I don't have the same knowledge. And that's really sad. It's a clear indication of a a culture that so deeply denies a part of their history. Both of us talking about how we really appreciate Indigenous art and we've learned a lot more about it later on in life I think as well, it's sometimes I almost feel a bit performative doing that as well. Like I'm making up for lost time or... You're kind of having to retroactively fix the gaps in your knowledge that happened through... I mean, it's through no fold of ours that we didn't get taught this. It's at an institutional level. It's not widely in a curriculum. It's not given to us without us seeking it out. It's not the responsibility of Indigenous Australians or black Australians or people of colour who live in Australia to give it to us. It's our job to seek it out. From them, though, I think seeking out diverse perspectives, because, you know, even I mentioned like being well-researched enough to be able to tell people that I lived with overseas a bit more context. I think if I were to do that now, I would hope that I would be able to like pass the mic a little bit and, and make space. That's something that Rachel mentions, actually, you know, the fact that 
she has a very particular experience. It is her experience. It is only one experience and that every person of color in this country has a different one. And so you have to diversify who you're listening to and who you're getting your knowledge from, because there are so many different aspects and angles and perspectives on this. And so I'm really excited to learn more and to keep digging into this topic because there's so much more to learn and so many people doing such wonderful work as well you're complicit in that system as well being white women so yeah it's a constant relearning process and self-directed expanding of your knowledge base that sounded very prescriptive but you know what I mean Have you found it difficult to navigate sort of the more modern contemporary art space and and fitting that in with culture and country and Indigenous art? Going back to not feeling like I belong anywhere, you know, I did a degree in visual communication design, which is essentially digital. But traditionally, a lot of Aboriginal work is weaving or rock art or, you know, painting, which is all great. But I think for me... Personally, the digital is such a new way of communicating. So it's such a fine line and it's a lot of internal struggle as well as external commentary to kind of feel like you belong. Because digitally, like our work is so new and as a a group of people or even as an individual, we are evolving. So traditionally we would have used, like I said, grass and off the land to weave and things like that but now we're kind of evolving to use this digital realm of work so it is something that I think for some people it's so new and they can't see the benefits of it or they can't see where it can still play a role and you know traditional art can still exist so internally based off you know external commentary it is difficult to navigate but I think I'm kind of at the point now where I believe in myself enough to kind of know what's valid and what's not in terms of feedback and commentary. So have you got sort of a lot of comments online that were really negative or? Yes, particularly recently, actually, when there has been such a a spotlight on, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, making sure that we're in equitable spaces. I feel like because my profile has kind of been spotlighted that people are more willing to kind of have comments that they'd like to put online but not necessarily in person but yeah it's definitely something that I do struggle with is getting um, criticism online about my work and about its messaging about how I look so I guess that's difficult to navigate but yeah like I said I'm starting to kind of be grounded by the people around me well I felt like I've always been grounded by the people around me but in this specific way to understand, you know, where those comments are coming from and what it's based off to really understand whether it's something I need to listen to or not. Has it mostly been non-Indigenous people just sort of throwing comments around or has it been Indigenous communities? I think it's been varied in in different ways. I think what we need to understand and what I kind of remind myself of is we haven't ever really seen this much of a, a spotlight on, you know, Aboriginal culture and the Black Lives Matter movement. And social media didn't exist when we were campaigning for other issues. So accessibility to messaging and people is a lot more, it's out there a lot more than what it was previously. So we're still kind of 
situations like this, we don't really necessarily think of it at the time, but a lot of what's going on is coming from a place of trauma. And, you know, you kind of, you have to acknowledge that some people will go into a fight or a flight mode and really unpack their own personal trauma and, you know, conditioning that we've all been through regardless of, you know, race. So I think it's that time before we're going to see a light where it's very messy and it's very, you know, we're in the trenches at the moment. So we're kind of working through it in different ways that we may not have actually been exposed to before. Have you found the reverse of that's true too? Like you've been getting a lot of support because of the the spotlight? Yeah, um, definitely. And that's not to say that everything I experience is negative. There's definitely a lot of people who are, you know, really supportive and whether that's mob or whether it's an ally, they're really kind of getting behind me and my work. And I think that's the beautiful thing is, you know, not everyone needs to resonate with my work and not everyone needs to kind of amplify my voice I think we need to diversify the voices that we're amplifying and also the work that we're amplifying and putting a spotlight on so I think the beauty is like yes there's a lot of support for me but there's other artists and you know even Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are delivering their message in a different way that's getting a lot of support as well so I'm hopeful. In a business sense I think I'm standing on the, you know, the shoulders of giants. So my dad runs his own business. There's a lot of strong Aboriginal businesswomen who have come before me. So I have kind of felt that confidence or been given like the okay because I've seen it in reality. But I definitely think we're starting to see a shift where we have more women and more Aboriginal women occupying this space. So it's the strength and diversity that's really really allowing me to kind of be able to do what I'm doing because there's a lot of people who've come before me who have done a lot of the hard work. History has proven how important art is in terms of conveying a message and, you know, campaigning for, you know, rights in different ways. So if you think about even, you know, the raised fist, that's such an iconic image I do also want to acknowledge that the privilege that I do have being a light-skinned Aboriginal woman because I can, you know, walk into a room and not have this preconceived idea of, you know, being Aboriginal, I guess. But I still think that comes with its own complexities. But I do want to acknowledge that, like, I do live with a lot of privileges that others may not. Some of our podcast listeners are from America, so they don't even know a lot about Indigenous Australia at all. Uh, let alone Australians who really weren't educated enough uh, or haven't done the work to, to know more. So I think, um, you know, just sort of what that means and, and why that would sort of affect identity and just presenting in a different way, I guess. Just any thoughts you have on that? So I guess it kind of comes down to colonisation, right? So Aboriginal people have existed for over 60,000 years. And like I mentioned, when Cook and his, you know, fellow invaders, should I say, came over. And like I mentioned, my great-great-grandfather was a convict that came over. So by kind of having that process of colonisation, there was a lot of history that shows, you know, the black was supposed to be bred out of people. There's a lot of resources that explain, I guess, the attempt to poison Aboriginal people to eradicate us, putting, you know, toxins into the water, so that we would become infertile. So that kind of 
is one aspect to understanding why, you know, light-skinned Aboriginal people like myself exist, as well as, you know, this idea of this label of a half-caste, you know, like, and the stolen generation. Any lighter-skinned people were stolen in an attempt to, you know, assimilate us into a westernised way and, again, touching on that eradication of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it's a very complex issue and one that is very traumatic for you know a lot of us because that whole stolen generation although that was kind of labeled as a few years we're still seeing that now we're still seeing our children removed and that disconnection from culture and I think it's important to know that you know someone who identifies as aboriginal it's not identifiable based on the color of your skin but your values and being you know connected to community so I guess in that regard it kind of explains the complexity of the light skin because it's off the basis of colonization this idea to eradicate people of color and essentially assimilate the ones that were able to be assimilated so it is complex and I probably didn't do it justice so I would encourage people to look into the stolen generation look into those early years and the early history of Australia and half caste and stolen um, wages as well just all of these little aspects of history and you know I do my part through my art but there's definitely other people out there who their core existence is about sharing and dismantling this misconceptions of history so I probably wouldn't be the best person to speak on behalf of all of those but um, there are a lot of people particularly the Healing Foundation that you know speak about that really well. For our listeners from overseas, the Stolen Generations are a horrendous part of Australian history and regards our treatment of First Nations Australians between around 1910 and the 1970s due to various government assimilation policies. Throughout this time, First Nations children were forcibly removed from their families. There was a misguided belief that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should die out and children should be assimilated into white society. Many children were placed into institutions where neglect and abuse was common or adopted into white families. Children were forced to reject their heritage, change their names and forbidden to speak their traditional languages. The generations of children removed under these policies became known as the Stolen Generations. These policies left a legacy of trauma and loss that continues to affect Indigenous communities, families and individuals today. This is only a brief introduction and I encourage you to look into the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people throughout Australia's history further. There are some great resources to be found online. The Healing Foundation provides stories from First Nations people affected by the stolen generations, including videos, lesson plans and other resources. Common Ground is an Aboriginal-led not-for-profit that has a network of First Nations contributors and creatives and have some excellent information and resources. We have listed further resources in our website show notes for you to get started. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. feel that having created this art that so many people are reacting to I guess it's given you a platform have you felt like a a sense of like responsibility because of that yeah I definitely do and it's not even a sense of responsibility but it's also kind of acknowledging that you know I'm not an authority on everything but you kind of have this idea that you know 
I think I've almost got 30,000 followers on Instagram now. And that's something that I've never experienced before. It's not like I have three other accounts with like 30,000 followers on it. So it's a very new thing for me to kind of have this spotlight on my work. And, you know, I'm very cautious in how I talk about things now because I never ever want to come off as an authority despite the amount of followers that I have. I think it's important that I I know that I'm an authority of my own experiences and my own journey, but I never ever want to be just this, you know, this poster girl or this championed account that speaks on all issues and that's expected by everyone to be the only way that it can be spoken about. So there's a pressure and also like a privilege that comes with that. You know, I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity to use this platform to share, but I also want people to know that, you know, you really do need to diversify your audiences and or the people that you followed because, you know, we're not going to have the same journey. We're not going to have the same experiences. There's a lot of appropriation of Aboriginal art and culture out there. For some artists, it's, you know, very traditional stories, dreamtime stories passed down through generation and generation, which is ridiculously disheartening to see that being appropriated. For me, who's more abide by my traditional heritage, but kind of brings it into a contemporary space, it's still very hurtful to see. There's this idea that having Aboriginal art on your wall, is it makes everything okay when really, you know, we're more than just, artwork on a wall you know you can't support our work and then turn around and not acknowledge the fact that um, there is systematic racism going on and there's division in your own community there might even be division in your own mindset you know like our bias that we sit with you might feel like you're doing fine because you've got artwork on your wall but I definitely think if you're the type of person that does want to have artwork on your wall then you need to show up in other conversations outside of you know art and design. Yeah absolutely yeah I can see what you mean we um we were recently talking about just you know because of the Black Lives Matter movement it's been interesting to sort of go okay we need to face up to what we don't know about Indigenous culture which turns out is a lot more than I thought perhaps. And so, yeah, it's true. Putting some art on the wall is very performative anti-racism, but it's not, if you don't do the work, I guess it's just that. It's just performing it rather than actually giving a shit. (laughs) Through just sort of traditional schooling, did you learn at all about Indigenous art or did you find you had to go elsewhere to find anything? Because I remember my schooling, I didn't, we didn't really cover it very much. It was very base level. In primary school, definitely not. I think um, it might be different now, but in primary school, the only thing I can remember is, you know, Captain Cook came to Australia. In high school, in art specifically, there was an option to kind of explore it. In health, there was a subject that actually didn't even count towards your total mark, but you had to kind of report on it, which was interesting. But yeah, I definitely think there was a, you know, I'm 28 this year. So even 10 years ago when I was in graduating from high school, I felt like there was still such a huge gap in the education around, you know, Aboriginal culture. Yeah, you'd have a flag hanging up during NAIDOC or, you know, we didn't even really have an acknowledgement for country on significant events. So even 10 years ago, it's very different to what we're seeing now. We need to embed Aboriginal culture into all aspects of learning, but 
you know, I can understand how difficult that can be when we're putting this expectation onto teachers who haven't actually been supported through their university degrees and then are kind of expected to teach culture, which can end up being quite a problematic process. But I think that education is key. And I think for some people, they're doing their own work and seeking that education outside of, you know, a standard structure or curriculum. But I think that's something that we can, you know, quite simply embed into schools by having cultural advisors and connecting with local elders and just really guiding that process a little bit. And then we'll start to see that transition over time. So, yeah, I definitely think it's quite important. And you think it's gotten a bit better over the years? Or, I mean, there's still a long way to go as evidenced by the movement itself. I think it's gotten better in the sense that it's being spoken about. I still get a lot of people sending me emails or um, messages to kind of say, hey, it's NADOC week, I really want to do something in class. And, you know, NADOC week for, you know, Aboriginal people is like so busy. It's hard to kind of enjoy it for what it is when you're kind of in high demand as a resource. And often with how schoolings work, you're not really paid for the time or effort that you put into. So I definitely think that It has gotten better in that we're talking about it and we're wanting to embed it in there. But I think the burden is not necessarily the burden, but I think the expectation is being placed on the the wrong type of people or not necessarily even the wrong type of people, but it's still this idea that it needs to exist within NAIDOC week. And realistically, we need to think of Aboriginal culture and First Nations culture as you know, core business essentially and it needs to be every day of the year, not just seven days in NAIDOC week sort of thing. Yeah, you can't put an entire civilization's culture into a few days (laughs) of learning. Where is a a good place for for non-Indigenous people to start, you know, finding that information around Indigenous art? Is there anything you would recommend that people do? Yeah, I mean, I think diversifying your thinking and your like I guess your community first and foremost connecting with your local elders your local council should be able to point you in the direction you would hope that the council have engaged the local elders as well as using social media in the way that like hashtags exist to kind of put content together that are relevant to each other so really great to work with Molly I mean Molly and I are kind of going through this at a similar time, you know, the Titters for Titters platform has really taken off and, you know, Marley in her own right is a very talented um, Aboriginal woman and writer and, you know, we often talk about the, the pressure that we're feeling online and kind of being really open about the, I guess, the criticism but also the really positive messages that are coming through. So, yeah, to be able to work on Marley's book and share the stories of the women that are in there in a visual way is super powerful, you know. Definitely a career highlight and to see someone as, you know, beautiful and authentic and as, you know, talented and just a very special person like Marley be able to, you know, release a book like this. And I know it's definitely been her dream to release a book. Just to be part of that journey, it's kind of really special to see it come to life. So, yeah, she's amazing, Marley. And you had um the... I've forgotten the name of the bridge that had your work um, projected on. Yeah, the William uh, William Jolly Bridge. It's really cool. That was part of a collaboration with Blacklash Creative and the Brisbane City Council. And it's 
it's really about showcasing Indigenous artists in Brisbane, which is such a powerful platform to be involved in. And it's been some time since we've done it. So it's really been embraced by the community because there were several other um, artists that kind of had pop-up pieces of work throughout Brisbane. And, you know, Brisbane, I think, is a little bit behind April compared to, you know, places like Melbourne who have, like, really encouraged and embraced street art. So to have an opportunity to really take over Brisbane in a sense and kind of fill it with art and, you know, culture. It's really powerful. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bad Behaviour with the incredible Rachel Sarah. It is so important that we continue to look into these different topics and to celebrate the incredible Indigenous women in this country. As Rachel said, she is just one of many. There are so many different perspectives and different people who are doing incredible things. And I encourage you to go and look for them and to start learning about them and to broaden your knowledge because I still definitely feel like I'm at the start of my journey. And I'd love for you guys to come along with us as we as we keep talking to really incredible women. Absolutely. And pay your rent. You know, if you live on stolen land, pay your rent, buy Indigenous art. We're going to link to some of our favourite Indigenous artists in the show notes of this episode. We really encourage you to check out their work and find out ways that you can monetarily support them because that's really important. Thank you for joining us. And if you liked this episode and you'd like to support the production of this podcast, then we would love if you became one of our Patreons. We have some incredible stuff on there. We're putting up episode extras of things that we couldn't include in the episodes. We have bonus episodes. We've got various little articles going up and we would love to build a community there. So check us out. We all misbehave sometimes Wanna change the world Indulge in some bad behavior